you know, one of those examples of like franchisors, if you're listening, like if you focus on your franchisees making money, everything else is a lot easier. (laughs) Like coach them, help them, support them. You can't do it for them. But like you just see the franchise companies that have a truly dedicated focus on their franchisees being successful and making money perform better than most. Welcome to Franchise Empires, where aspiring entrepreneurs learn exactly what it takes to become a successful franchise owner, from one location to 10 and beyond. I'm the Wolf of Franchises. Hey everyone, it's the Wolf. Today in the show, we have Drew Carpenito and JT Singh. We talk about a lot, including why JT just bought a fencing franchise the brands whose FTDs we're watching closely to come out in the next few months, and a whole lot more. Enjoy our conversation. The Wolf of Franchises is the CEO of Wolfpack Franchising, as well as a creator at Workweek Media. All opinions expressed by The Wolf and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Wolfpack Franchising or Workweek. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. The Wolf, Workweek, and Wolfpack franchising may maintain positions in the franchises discussed on this podcast. Crushing your dinner rush is table stakes. You need the HR and payroll solution that keeps you and your staff prepped for tomorrow. Paylocity helps HR focus on your employees by making recruitment smarter and onboarding faster. Visit paylocity.com slash restaurants. Welcome to the show, man. Hot take JT, baby. You recently bought Superior Fence and Rail. You want to tell us about that deal? How many territories, why you bought them versus any other franchise since you know the space super well? Yeah, man. I probably looked at, I don't even, I've actually lost count, probably 500 to 1,000 different brands over the last year. I owned the franchise before, sold it, had a nice slush fund that my wife tells me, all right, you can use all this money to invest in whatever you want. So I've been looking at franchises. This is the second one I did in the last seven or so months. I wanted to do home services. I like the space. I like the investment size relative to the upside that you can get in here. And digging into Superior, if you actually look at their FDD and you talk to franchisees, there's a lot of guys doing, call it five to 15 million in revenue. And there's not, I can't name more than three or four home service brands that that's even possible. And especially in a brand that just started franchising in what, 2019, 2020, they, you know, launched with Fastlane and I think 21. So most of their franchisees are pretty new. Their AUVs, year one AUVs were, I think around 2 million bucks. Right now they actually came down a little bit. I think they're a million eight now, but you look at that and you look at the total investment. So I paid about Caught the equivalent of eight territories. So outside of the franchise fees, probably another 200, 250 grand investment. And you figure if that's a business I can get to 10 million in revenue within five years, that's a home run, right? And then I also look at downside. Hypothetically, if I failed, I had to resell my territory. I have to resell the truck, the equipment, the inventory, all of that. You know, I'll probably be out two, 300 grand. So that two, 300 grand downside relative to the upside was just a no brainer for me. That's probably the high level summary. On top of that, there's, you know, great validation. Territory is always tough to find. I got kind of lucky with that. I can go into that if you guys want. And I, I like the corporate team. I like the support. I liked Empower. I like Zach. He has this good business. Damn. All right. So hundreds, if not a thousand franchises he looked at, that was the one he went with. 
how many Z's did you actually speak to during the validation? And how many were there total that you could have spoken to? There's over a hundred. I've probably spoken to 20 or so. I think it was 22. So it's a little bit of a unique scenario too, where Superior is basically sold out across the country. Drew knows this. You know, there's packets of availability, single territories, one or two territories. Detroit was, all of Metro Detroit was eight. And for me to find that was like, you know, finding, it was almost impossible. But the guy who owned that was a large, who's now my partner, he's a minority partner. He bought all of Chicago, bought all of Detroit. He's a big multi-unit franchisee. He's like the third largest in European wax. He's in Plato's Closet, a few others. He wanted a partner and he said, you know, you'd be my operator and I'll let you into the system. And you know, that, that was gonna be my way to break in. I didn't want to do that. So I told him I wanted to buy it out. We went back and forth, ultimately settled where I, I owned the overwhelming majority. But for me, keeping him out as a partner, I had two benefits. One, I could get into the system. And two, I could leverage his resources, his network, all that type of thing. Yeah. Yeah, the fence space, man. It's like, it's one of these niches, right? Like who saw it coming? Yeah. It's kind of crazy. Like you can't draw that one up, right? How well, many brands can. have launched in the last year? I mean, what, we have three more? Everybody saw superior success and you have three more. I mean, that happens in any industry, right? You look at roofing, Mighty Dog crushed it. And now you have how many more coming into it? You know, insulations, it's happening. It's any franchise, you have success. There's going to be an industry leader and then you're going to have copycats come after. And the copycats can do well too, right? Yeah, I've talked to and heard many stories of franchisees and the other systems like accidentally falling into very large six-figure jobs with builders and stuff like that. Like it, it was kind of one of these like untapped, truly fragmented categories that the numbers are really good on with, you know, pretty high ticket subcontractor model and a lot more demand than anybody would have thought. Yeah, well, that's like, JT, you hopefully, I'm assuming, looked at this. I feel like the tickets, like the, the AUVs you were citing, aren't they higher because you're lumping in the price of whatever fencing actually costs? So like, are the margins the same as like, what I would expect for a typical home services franchise, which is like around 20%. No, margins are probably a little lower, little lower than that. I mean, look, it's, you, you have a $7,500 average ticket job, right? So inventory is a big piece of the business as well. So margins are probably lower than that. But to me, it's, look, if you're if the, the top third of franchisees are doing 5 million, even if it's only 10%, that's 500 grand. I mean, that's a lot of money, right? The top third are doing 5 million. And I've talked to franchisees in the system, you know, become close friends with a few of them who are, you know, year two doing 4 million margins. You know, that's probably the higher. What you said was probably the a little bit higher than what I've seen for any of the, the, yeah. any of the higher franchisees. But I'd say 10 to 15% is definitely doable. Okay. So you can be out there slinging fences yeah. yourself or you got somebody who's going to be uh, doing the sweat equity? I'm installing, man. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> most expensive installer in the country. <laughs> no, so I, how I how I structured it, I'm hiring a home and operations manager day one, right? So he's going to be, my conversations with him is like, you are going to be the GM, but you're not the GM yet. You're, you've got something to work towards. So we came up with a structure where he has a base salary. It's a good base salary to start. His goal is six to 12 months in. He's going to learn everything about the business and he's going to take over as GM. Once he takes over his GM, he gets a very sizable pay bump, and then he's going to own 10% of the profits interest in the business. So every year, whatever profit we're doing, he's getting his salary, and then he's getting 10% of that. And then each year that goes on, 
he gets another 2%. So after five years, he'll own, we'll have a nice salary and he'll own basically 20% of the profits, interest of the business. That's the way I structured it. Ben Little influenced that quite a bit. You know, his structure seems to work really yeah. well. I know there's a few other guys that have done that. I think he gives 25% of the profits. It's hard to give somebody that day one, but if they've proven themselves and they've grown the pie, I'd set up to 20%. I'd be flexible if it made sense to, but that was the original structure that we agreed on. And this guy is pumped. I mean, he's ready to go. He's like, I want, he's my right-hand guy. He's going to be doing everything. He's going to learn everything with me. He's going to all the trainings. Like He's going to the full owner training, like the GM owner training. He's doing all of it. So for me, I'm going to be very involved, but he's going to be my right-hand guy that, you know, when things hit the fan, he's the first call. I'm the second. So I got two questions for you. One, is it phantom stock or is it real equity that he can earn it's into? profits interest. So if he left, or I sold the business, he doesn't get okay. anything, right? That could change. It's yep. also easier from like a documentation standpoint, like, right? For sure. And he's not writing a check. So to me, I, I told him, I was like, look, if you want to write a check, you know, here's the investment size. For you to write a check for 10 or 20% is a pretty big number that he, he can't write. So if he wants to, you can, but, or this is the alternative where you're basically owning 10 to 20% of the business just for working there, right? At no risk. So I think- I would have loved that deal. Somebody gave that to me 10 years ago. I would have signed up for that in the spot. So is that considered semi-absentee, JT, or what? <laughs> Before we even get to that. You still going to be tweeting while you're operating? The JT posted, you posted on Twitter the other day that I actually ended up throwing in my newsletter. The low-performing franchisee who got sold, you know, I'm kind of skimming through your tweet right now. Yeah. Got sold by a slick FSO. This was a manage-the-manager model. Ended up, you know, 15 months in that business sounds like I'm not sure what brand you were talking about with this deal, but the business was burning cash and that manager ended up quitting. So the owner had to either hire another manager, close up the shop, quit his job and dive in. Is this obviously this isn't a brick and mortar brand like the story you were telling, but yeah, I guess that, you know, to piggyback on Drew's question, how do you see this as different? Which I have my own take on why I think it's different, but I'm just curious to, to so, see I mean, what you're look, at, at face value, you could probably call me a hypocrite, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but here's, here's where it's different. One, so I do various things. I'm not 100% all into any one of them. With this, I'm going to be pretty hands-on. And I'm going to the owner training. For me, the first year, I'm going to be there every single day, right? Like... I'm going to be going to, and this guy's not the GM. I'm the GM. He's reporting up to me. He's going to be my right-hand man. He's eventually going to get promoted to it. But the difference between me and the guy that I tweeted about is that guy didn't even know the business because he was sold by a, you know, some sleazy franchise salesperson that, hey, you buy the business, you hire a GM, we'll help you find that GM, right? They've put an Indeed ad up for them and they're like, all right, this guy, interview him, might work out. Cool. He kept his job. He kept a full-time job. He didn't have a flexible schedule. And he had to fully rely on this GM to run the business for him. Yes, he would call yeah. him maybe once or twice a day, whatever. But when that guy left, he couldn't just hire another manager because he didn't even know the business, right? Oof. So for him, it was going to be, let me call the franchisor and see if they can train another manager for me because I, can't, I don't even know the business. How can that person possibly expect that their business is going to turn out you know, successful? So the difference with me is everything I do, I have 100% flexibility in, right? If I need to be there for 80 hours and I can't do anything else that week, I can tell everything else I'm doing, hey, I'm busy, I'm flexible, whatever. I can make it work. But if I had a desk job 
And I haven't had a, I haven't had a desk job like this in years that actually made me report to a desk and sit there and do my job. There's no way I would do it. There's no way. No yeah. way. The flexibility is the key, right? Like to where you can improvise or, you know, do a man, do a semi-absentee manager run, whatever you want to call it, right? Like you got to have a lot of flexibility in the day job to be able to pull that off and be willing to step in if it doesn't go as planned. The people I've seen do this well. So when I talk on Twitter, it's usually I'm speaking to the majority. I'm not talking about the exceptions, but the exceptions that are able to do it have really flexible jobs, right? These are people that are usually, I've seen a lot of people in sales where they're making a ton of money doing something sales related. They're like, you know, I'm, I'm doing medical device sales or whatever. And they work on their own clock. So they can manage it, right? Semi-absentee doesn't mean, you know, people have different definitions for what it could mean, but you could still work 40 hours in the business and do something else as well, right? We have to work more. But if you're camping yourself, I have 40 hours of a nine to five, at five o'clock, my wife needs me to be home and I can't do anything until the next morning. That's tough. Yeah, that is tough. What do you think, Drew? Is that your understanding as well? 100%. Yeah. It. I mean, you get them all the time. I, I think people don't know, right? Number one, like everybody wants to own a business. It's, it's literally the American dream, right? It's a powerful, emotional thing, but the reality of what it takes, first year is tough of any business. You got to learn it, you know, and it's not going to be, you're not going to be printing money typically from day one. And you got to be prepared for it financially, but then also bandwidth wise, right? Like you got to have enough bandwidth in your personal life to be able to allocate to standing any one of these businesses up. And I think that's where people can interpret it a little bit differently, right? When they're kind of in the heat of the battle during the due diligence and, you know, getting sold a dream and, you know, all the emotions start to get very real. It's just, you know, if you haven't done it before, sometimes you just don't know until you get in the game what it's going to be like. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I'd add, a lot of people, when they get into a franchise, they're stretching to get into it to begin with, right? So they say, all right, I'm going to work with the broker. He said, let me find something. I have a hundred grand of cash. I'm going all in. That's all I got. I'm going to get an SBA loan and I'm going to buy a business, I don't know, four or 500 grand. So they're, they end up putting 20% down or whatever. That's all they have. They can't afford to hire somebody like I'm hiring day one, right? They have to be that GM. They have to make sure that they're keeping payroll costs down, all of that. For me, it's worth my time to hire somebody else and pay them a little bit more so that I could be a little less involved. The other piece I'll add to this too is, my last franchise, my last GM who worked for me, she was a rock star, literally a rock star. She worked 24 hours around the clock. She owned that business as much as I did. She's joining me as well. So not only do I have that GM, oh, but nice. I have her working with me. For me, those two, they're the dream team, right? Like she ran a business that was harder than this and worked 24 hours around the clock. When I say 24 hours, like I actually mean 24 hours. I mean, senior, we were in the senior care business. We have people working. Literally, there's a 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. shift. People don't show up. People will leave early. There's issues that come up. She was taking those calls. This is a fencing business. This is much easier than that. And so I have her and my operations manager. And then we're going to have some other people as well. But like those two to me are really what allow me to do anything that I want to do here. I think you said something pretty key there. You're willing to pay for talent, right? Like you're willing to pay a little bit above market rate or whatever, you know, whatever it might be. And then also, you know, give them a nice variable piece of the upside of the work that right. they put into it. So it can't be cheap. If you're, if you're looking at a franchise under a manager run model, it's well, it's typically worth paying a little bit extra for somebody that you think is going to be good. 
And because that person's worth more than that, especially if you've got other stuff going on and you're trying to get this thing. Yeah. I mean, look, if you're paying, if I'm paying an extra, you know, 50 or 100 grand a year, hypothetically, I mean, that's probably in the high end, right? If I'm, but I've let's just say that it's still worth it to me, right? And somebody else who's just going all in on this and they need to be the gym, they can't spend an extra 1500 grand a year because they need that to live, right? Yeah. So all of that is kind of the long way of saying, you know, I tell people don't do semi-absentee. I don't think what I'm doing is called semi-absentee by any means, but I'm able to do other things as well. This is like the most annoying answer, but a lot of times when people ask, like, what franchise should I buy? What should I do? It's so context dependent because like you're in such a specific scenario with your flexibility of time, the fact that you have more money to be able to, you know, pay a GM more, you know, the fact that you found this business in the market you're in, like you've got this whole basically narrative around why you're doing what you're doing. And that narrative is so different for, for every single person, right? It changes with the brand. And obviously that to me, that's like, the biggest thing here is the brick and mortar franchises out there. They cost so much more. And the people who, like you said, a lot of people are, regardless of what the business is, they're pretty much going all in on it. So with the brick and mortar brands, though, you're in a much bigger hole on day zero, right? And usually those economics aren't nearly as good. And the ramp to cash flow is probably going to be slower for a brick and mortar brand. So obviously there's exceptions. I'm sure we all have a bunch in our head, but yeah, I don't know. I, that's why it just really scares me if someone's like a first time owner. And I mean, sounds like your your buddy who you, you kind of had that story about on Twitter had mo- some more money to spend than probably the average Joe. But but still, it's just I just think brick and mortar brands. It's a lot scarier than, you know, what you're doing with Superior Fence and Rail. It's like less on the line for you, even if God forbid shit did hit the fan. And I, I think about that all the time, right? That, I mean, I'm a conservative Indian CPA by heart. So like, you know, <laughs> I think about downside nice. and anything I go into. And to me, it's like, yeah, worst case scenario, if I lost 300 grand here, it wouldn't crush me. I don't have an SBA loan either. So it's easier for me to keep this afloat. So all of that, like you said, you know, there's exceptions to everything. And honestly, even on top of that, I have a minority partner who lives 15 minutes from me, who worst case scenario, if you know, the two people that I talked about and me couldn't work things out. He would help as well. So we have a pretty good support system, you know, going into this. I got a story kind of on the other side of that. Like I was telling you guys offline, I, th- I think it kind of ties into this a little bit. I've been working with this guy for two years. Good dude. Like I like working with him. He's genuinely trying to find a franchise that he can pull off because his personal situation is super successful financial services executive. But just he just wants out of the corporate world. Like he's ready to get out, but he's making a ton of money. And he's got some flexibility. He's comfortable with risk. And he went down, he's been going down the path of a particular franchise that gets buzzed around Twitter all the time. And in his mind, he was like, okay, I've conceptually figured out a way that I think I can do this. Now, this is in his mind based off the information that he was gathering from the brand directly and the sales rep and stuff like that. And, you know, group validation calls. And I was like, dude, you got to talk to some franchisees one-on-one offline. That's the only way you can figure this thing out. And he did. And the validation call he made was like, not good. And there's no way like this person's in it full time and and they're having a hard time making it work. And I think it's because it's like a super low average ticket. Like in order to get enough revenue coming in, you have to do a tremendous amount of transactions and jobs 
Whereas like with Superior at what, 7,500 or whatever it is, like that's a lot of revenue that's going to come in. Maybe it's not as profitable from a margin perspective compared to other businesses, but it's still a lot of cash coming into the business that gives you a nice cushion to be able to play with. And so it's like the economics of these businesses are important to look at, but, you know, talking to the franchisees and validating the right way is, I think, one of the things that people say they, maybe they think they do validation the right way, but sometimes they don't, oh. right? They don't ask the right questions. They don't, yeah. they don't call enough franchisees to get a big enough sample size to really get the, you know, a, a full spectrum of the operation, top, middle, bottom performers and kind of why. And um, I think that's also where people get into franchises and get hurt, right? Because they just don't do the research. The, the process right way. is designed, you know, by the industry. I mean, it's brilliant tactically, right? I mean, you have the validation typically either right before or right after Discovery Day. Like that's when it begins, I feel like. And for one, you've probably already gone through a big process of just narrowing down your brand list, like fatigue starting to set in. But then the brand's starting to lightly, you know, sprinkle in some pressure of like, hey, like Discovery Day coming up, you know, and you're, you're trying to say, hey, I'm trying to call more Z's, but you're tired. You know, you're starting to feel the pressure maybe. And then if you go to a discovery day, I feel like that's when people get emotionally bought in. And it's like been proven in every sales psychology book that people buy emotionally and then justify intellectually after the fact. So yeah, I think you're right though, Drew. I mean, that's really the moral of any story. It's the most boring answer, but just talk to every franchisee possible. Uh, I mean, you know, JT, even at 22% of the system, I think is what you said you talked to for Superior. That's higher than pretty much Nine out of 10 people I've ever spoken to. Most of them, they just take whoever the franchisor sends them, few phone calls, and then, you know, decision time. Well, it's tough right now. The, just like right now for the cycle we're in, you know, February 2024, where all these FDDs yeah. are 14 months yeah. old, right? Like, you know, so like you're missing 12 months worth of data of new franchisees that came into the system. Like you just get a sleuth <laughs> the internet and track them down, you know, to, to kind of get to them because they're not going to be in the FDD. It's a red flag if, franchisors are like dodging that in my opinion i'm obviously like fully on the side of the franchise buyer but it's just like i don't know if you start hiding things i'm gonna get squirmish as a buyer like every single time i don't know if it's the franchisor sometimes it's just the rep yeah oh right? yeah because the reps controlling a lot of the information yeah. delivery i'm, I'm lumping but... yeah that's fair. Yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah from a validation standpoint one thing i actually liked a lot about superior is the, the people that, so they referred me to three people, you know, every brand does it. They're like, hey, here's three people you should talk to. They're similar backgrounds, similar, you know, geography, and then somebody who's uh, a top performer that you want to talk to. One of the guys that they referred to me, I don't know if they knew this or what, he was like the lowest performer in the system. Like Superior has really strong validation. This guy was like year two, still not making money. And I asked him after the fact, I was like, why the hell did you refer me to that guy from your perspective, you know, from a franchise or perspective? Like, I expect you to refer me to the three top candidates that are going to sell me on the brand. And they didn't. And then the other piece of it was, so they used to use, you know, Fastlane. They brought franchise development in-house. They're not selling a ton of units anymore. But I spoke with, you know, the brand president, Zach. Zach is not a salesman at all. Like, he's, that's just not who he is. You know, he's a guy who had a $20 million fencing business in Jacksonville. He doesn't sell you at all. Like when I was asking him, how much should I budget, this and that, he told me a number that was like well below what I would consider conservative. He's like, this is how you should think about it. Budget for this number. Very few franchisors are like that. Usually they're hardcore sales mode. You know, they want to, you know, vaguely tell you, you can, you're going to be a millionaire in 
you know, record time, this and that. Zach was like, nope, here's the number you should budget. Here's our business model. Look at it, talk to franchisees. If you want to do it, great. If not, you know, don't do it. It is what it is. Zero salesmanship. But to me, I like that. I, 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 I was like, I love that. Oh, I'm yeah. used to the exact opposite, right? Where it's guys who are extremely incentivized with big commissions, get you to buy, leading you to the water and telling you everything that they need to tell you to get you to close. Their process is not like that at all. It probably used to be, but I don't know about yeah. today. It's not. I worked with a guy that got close to buying. He was super interested in superior for all the reasons that you were saying, went deep, talked to a bunch of franchisees, but he was in this like weird market. It was in, in the mountains somewhere. So it's, it's kind yeah. of a funky market. And Zach wouldn't sell him a franchise because he wasn't confident enough about the demographics in the area Damn. and just some of the quirkiness. But it was interesting like what I learned about Zach because it seems like Zach knows like all of his franchisees P&Ls pretty well. Like yeah. he, he looks at their numbers in a way to help support them, not police them. And I think it's like, you know, one of those examples of like franchisors, if you're listening, like if you focus on your franchisees making money, everything else is a lot easier. <laughs> you know, like coach them, help them, support them. You can't do it for them. But like you just see the franchise companies that have a truly dedicated focus on their franchisees being successful and making money perform better than most. This is probably a prediction. I don't want to speak to the early days of Superior, but Zach has a massive business in Jacksonville, like one of the biggest fencing businesses in the country. So for him to franchise this, you know, he had the capital to do it. He wasn't, you know, trying to bootstrap this thing. When franchisors are trying to bootstrap, they're so overwhelmed with running their own business, they don't have time to look at franchisees' business to try to support them and make sure they're doing well, right? In their eyes, they're trying to close the next deal get the next franchise fee to keep their own lights on. That's why I would never want to go into become a franchisee of a brand that I wasn't confident had enough cash to actually comfortably support their own business, let alone think about mine. Here's a question. I've thought about it, not like in detail, but you know, JT, you were investment bankers. You probably know the rules here, but you know, public companies, there's minimum requirements to be listed uh, on the stock market. Do you guys think you know, franchisors should have to have some regulatory minimum requirement, whether it's cash on hand, I don't know, some type of proof of concept. Like, I mean, there's like random bubble tea franchises from Asia that are franchising without a single location or they're trying to, their FTD still says zero units, but yeah, thoughts on that, like an actual minimum requirement, some type of standard before you can franchise. And my take is yes. I obviously don't know what that minimum requirement is, but the reality is if you're asking people to spend hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars on your business. Like it's not a game that just any Joe Schmo should be able to get into. I think certain states have requirements. Other states different. I think there's certain states that have requirements. You have to show like X amount in your bank account. It's still not a big number. It's like, I think a couple hundred grand maybe, but I think that's about as far as it goes in terms of like a requirement. I actually talked to the guy yesterday who told me he wanted to start a franchise and he wanted to pick my brain about franchising, but he didn't have the, the core business yet. Like he was building the core business yeah. because he wanted a franchise. I was like, dude, get your business right. And if it makes sense and the business does well, then let's talk about franchising. Don't talk about franchising and then try to back into the business. That doesn't make any sense. But franchising is becoming like a cool thing that everybody wants to do. And you see the, you know, there's a phrase, I think both me and you use, but I don't want to say the person's name, but there's a playbook that somebody <laughs> runs really well. And the playbook is basically you start a business, you find a business. You know, that's, you can support, you use a 
you know, killer franchise sales organization or franchise development folks. And you try to sell as many units as you can, and then you exit to private equity. Like everybody's trying to do that. And people, some people are doing it really, really well. So if you think it, you know, hey, I can put, even if you spend a couple million bucks and you know, in five years, you're going to sell for 80, 90, hundred million dollars. That's a huge outcome that everybody wants to do. And the entire franchise industry is chasing that right now. Across the board, everybody's chasing that, especially amongst the emerging brands. So it's an industry thing that people are all pursuing. And unfortunately, a lot of franchisees are getting hosed because of it. Crushing your dinner rush is table stakes. You need the HR and payroll solution that keeps you and your staff prepped for tomorrow. Paylocity for restaurants and hospitality helps HR focus on your employees by making recruitment smarter and onboarding faster. Plus, tools to train and engage staff whenever and wherever they work. Focus on what you do best. Go to paylocity.com slash restaurants. Well, what do we think, though? Do you think we should have like formal official requirements or it's just, uh, just yeah. let it keep going? I mean, as I, is? I'm probably more extreme than, than most. I think, you know, your item 19 should be required to show full P&Ls Definitely for the corporate yep. stores, ideally for the franchisees too. If you're standing up a new franchisor, you could do that. I get some of the bigger systems. They're like, we're not going to go back and have everybody, you know, start sharing their P&Ls. But like, if the three of us were starting a franchise today, we could pretty easily get full P&Ls for all of our franchisees. And if your system yeah. is good, why would you not want to show that? Yeah, I think as much as I hate to have the government interfere in business and stuff, I think there could be some loose, you know, minimums that companies need to hit. But then it's like, okay, then you got the government. How do you manage that from the government standpoint? Because even these reg- registration states, it's a freaking yeah, yeah. whatever it's renewal time. It just clogs up and creates a log jam. They, they don't have the resources to process it. So it's like the caveat of like, if the government can do it efficiently and not get in the way of commerce, I like the idea. But that whole government management piece of things has not been proven to be done very well just from the state based stuff, except, you know, for like the Maryland's, the Virginia's, the New York's, the California, the Illinois, you know, there's some basic other states, but, but I do think like the item 19 needs to get some, there needs to be some standardization around it for sure. And the working capital piece. I don't know why it's only 90 days worth of working capital in the item seven. I think that's kind of silly as well. That's a good point. So yeah, I think the franchise or financials matter and also, right. Yeah. The level of detail and in the initial investment. And then of course, you know, I've, talked about this with both you guys and a lot of other people at nauseum of transparency in item 19. But yeah, the bar could be a lot higher. And that's really what it's all about. So yeah, I agree, Drew, like the idea of some government regulatory body having more of a foothold is a bit scary. It's just though, I just wish there was some way to really elevate like the level that a franchisor has to be at because I just see it. It just bothers me where, I mean, you know, I was, I was speaking to a, someone uh, emailed me last week. They started a brand two years ago like two franchisees and this actually happened twice in the last two months two separate brands two totally different industries they started one brand they sold like you know 10 to 15 units of each got a couple franchisees open it's going you know not great not horribly but both those founders of those brands are now i've now started franchising a second brand and they're asking me to you know promote it for them and i'm like i mean you have another brand that you know like what's going on there you know to me, it's like a major lack of focus to be even doing something like that. So yeah, I don't know. I just think it's... Uh, 
But I think like too, like, I mean, the essence of franchising is an expansion strategy for the company, right? Like that's the whole idea around it. And, you know, companies should look at it very strategically as like they should care. I mean, and a lot of them do like when they open a new location, like they care about the brand and the reputation and how the customers are serviced. And they want to, you know, obviously help as many customers as they possibly can in a new market they're going into with a franchise partner. But I think the other side of this coin that's, you know, tough to talk about, especially as a broker is like some people who buy franchises shouldn't buy franchises. And, you know, yeah, they, you know, you get sold. Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of anything, right? It, It is you know, the responsibility is that third leg of the stool, right? Like making sure you're ready from a financial standpoint and getting into this business to grind through that first year, however long it takes to ramp up the business, that you're ready to do what it's going to take. And it's kind of like a burn the boat mentality, right? Like that's what you see, you know, it's what JD's talking about. It's like, hey, look, whatever it takes, I'm going to, you know, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to make this thing successful. It's not your first rodeo. So you have a, you have a bigger, bigger advantage than a lot of people. But, you know, coming in and I think sometimes people think that because they buy a franchise, it's just going to magically happen on its own. And that's obviously not the case. Yeah. And I don't know where I don't think that's franchise salespeople telling them that I don't think it's franchise companies telling them that I think sometimes people connect dots in their own mind of what entrepreneurship and what franchise ownership is. Yeah, I agree with that. The buyer, obviously, it's not like they're just free and clear of, you know, any responsibility. I mean, they have, everyone has free will to make a decision or not make a decision. Well, the franchisor should have some accountability there too, right? It's like when you said, hey, the franchisees, some of them shouldn't buy franchises. Well, that franchisor probably shouldn't be selling franchises to people that they know are unlikely to succeed. I've seen it happen. I've literally been firsthand seeing franchisors have to sell units to get franchise fees to keep their own lights on. They're going to sell. They, you could yeah. have a a dog come with a check and say, we were, we're going to franchise it. You know, it's going to fail, <laughs> but they need that franchise fee. So they're going to sell the unit and they'll deal with the repercussions after. And as soon as that franchisee fails, they're going to try to have somebody else buy it so they can call it a transfer and hide it in their FDD. And like, there's so many games that go into, yeah, you know, an FDD that, and even going a step back when people say, oh, I looked at the balance sheet and, you know, how much cash did the franchise, the balance sheet in the FDD of the franchisor doesn't tell you anything. Franchisors, if they have 20 million bucks, they're not keeping it in a checking account to report on their balance sheet, right? You know, so there's really no way to validate just from looking at an FDD, how strong the franchisor is. Probably the best way to validate it, which is kind of a backhanded, weird way to do it is talk to people in the industry. Like talk to people like Drew, like we hear the things that go on in the industry. We hear the gossip around brands and, you know, franchisees buy brands to the broker and they get upset and they find out things They tell the broker and the broker, you know, tells other people his network and word gets around pretty quick. People know what's going on, like the inner workings of, of franchising. So that's probably the best way to do real diligence is talk to people because the FDD doesn't really tell you anything. For sure. Yeah. It's, there's games within the game. That's what, that's what we call ourselves the real housewives of franchising, yes. right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Let's go. We need to come up with a better I name. I know we that, do. We do need, we need a name for this segment. That's for damn sure. <laughs> well, this is interesting. So yesterday I was in New York for a meeting with my buddy. We, he takes me to this restaurant. He's like, oh, like the Chipotle founder's restaurant. You know, he's got some new restaurant called Colonel. It's like a vegan spot. Anyway, long story short, the founder's actually in there. Like, you know, it's only been open for, I don't know how long, but clearly it was like new and they're like testing their app and all this new tech. There's robots like serving up the food and it's smart lockers where you pick up the food after you order it on the app. Anyway, I got to talk to him for a few minutes. So randomly, obviously I brought up franchising and 
I asked him about the whole, you know, for folks listening who don't know, McDonald's once owned 90% of Chipotle. And so he, this person, I don't even, I still don't know his name. I should, I got to look it up. But the Chipotle founder worked super closely with all the McDonald's team. And so when I asked him about like that whole relationship, what was it like? You know, why did you end up kind of spinning off from them? He told me that they actually did sell, you know, I was like, why didn't you consider franchising the concept? And he was like, we actually did try it. It was with like three or four McDonald's franchisees. And he said it went horribly, which I just thought was super interesting. He said that basically it was just guys who had been operating McDonald's for a long time. And they started trying to do whatever like the McDonald's way was at the time. So applying that like operating system to the Chipotle business, which again, this is like a two minute conversation. So because he was like going down the line of customers that were in the store. But to me, I was like, huh, like that's just interesting that, you know, like, I wonder, is that, was there really just a culture clash where like a fast food operator couldn't handle a fast casual? And like, this is back in like 2005, I think too. So, you know, uh, well before like the fast casual hype train has taken off. But I'm also like, huh, like, you know, maybe you didn't train them well. Like, I, I don't know. Cause I just, it's obviously possible to run a fast casual. I don't know. It was just, it was interesting. And he did say too, that he's like, I, he's like, maybe we'll franchise this concept. But he's like, you know, I obviously have done it the other way already successfully. And he's like, it's better for me to not franchise. He's like, I want to own the whole thing, which I agree with that last part. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, you would make more money, but yeah. Any takeaways on that, on the, the lucky few who bought a Chipotle franchise? Is it that different? Like, economically? A McDonald's franchisee to me is probably, you know, most McDonald's franchisees have what, eight units or whatever. They're pretty sophisticated. Yeah. I have a hard time believing a McDonald's franchisee cannot operate a Chipotle. Like, that just seems really odd to me. Yeah. He's, I know. I was, I mean, again, like, I didn't get a chance to be like, hey, like, talk to me more about this. I was trying to, like, you know, just get as much as I could out of him while being polite. But yeah, I was shocked. I was like, I bet something's not adding up there. You know, I do think like every business has its nuances, right? They, that make it successful and make it go. And sometimes those little nuances rub, you know, create friction with how people are used to operating another business. And, and they're just not willing, like they're just not used to, or they don't, they can't make that transition to focus on the differences with, you know, it, it might be fresh food or, you know, whatever it is with Chipotle compared to the frozen stuff I would imagine that's in the McDonald's kitchen, right? Like those nuances that are really important to making a certain brand go or a certain business go can sometimes be, you see it sometimes like with operators that have had a lot of success in one franchise system. Sometimes it's not that easy to replicate it to the other system could be because the business economically just performs differently than what they've been used to. There could be, you know, different levers to pull compared to what they've been used to. Like, I think you've seen that with some Orange Theory franchisees, right? Now, those guys are spoiled. So like, <laughs> it's hard for, the, not that they didn't have to work hard and like be like, <laughs> you know, make it go. But I just think that. Oh, it's right know, concept, right time. Like, I mean, it just crushed. It was a little bit of a unicorn, yeah, right? I mean, was, and uh, not most franchises aren't, uh, aren't unicorn level. There's a franchise brand out there right now that, focused on selling to Orange Theory franchisees. I think you guys know what I'm talking about. Their entire system was, we're going to expand. We're going to do this and that. We're going to crush it. We're going to sell to Orange Theory franchisees because it's a somewhat complimentary business. And they've learned the hard way that Orange Theory franchisees are used to making a lot of money in a lot easier system than this one. <laughs> and, you know, the results are starting to, you know, show up amongst the system and, and they're realizing that now. 
So not discrediting Orange Theory franchisees. You know, they're obviously smart guys, made a ton of money. But, you know, you got to know who your real core franchisee base is. And sometimes, you know, those unicorn brands aren't the best operators. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think it's also just like Orange Theory is the exception, not the rule with, with franchising. Right. I mean, it seems like Crumble is having a reversion to the mean, like to the like average performance. We'll see with the new FTD, but I would say like them from 2018 through to last year, I guess, were like, they were also the exception, not the rule. There's probably a few other brands that we could throw in there over the last 15 years, but yeah, it's not normal. So then, I mean, to be honest, what my first brand I ever worked with, or my first like somewhat successful brand I ever worked with in franchise development was a pet brand. And we just reached out, got in touch with one of the biggest Orange Theory franchisees, and that person started telling a bunch of others. And it's not going amazingly, honestly. I don't think it's on the operators, frankly, from what I've heard. But yeah, the concept obviously matters too. And, and that's just part of it, right? Like I've just heard, you know, Jamie Weeks has been on the podcast, obviously a bunch. And I mean, some of these guys were just cash flowing so quickly from their locations. Like it just changes, right? To Drew's point, when the economics are different, right? If it takes all of a sudden a few years to get your money back, right? Like Ben Little told me on this show that it took him four years for what is now his top performing location and what's now the number one location in the country four years before they made a single profit on that store. And he's like, most franchisees wouldn't have even had the money to keep the lights on that long. And that goes to, you know, the item seven conversation we we're talking about. But yeah, economics can really differ. And that just, I think that really factors in, you know, the overall lifetime performance. That's incredible. I don't know anybody other than Ben that would buy a franchise, an expensive franchise, keep it open for four years burning cash just in hopes that it, like most people would go bankrupt for one and to have that much conviction to keep a business open that's burning cash for four straight years like props to Ben. Ben's a badass. Ben is a badass. I got to get him back on. I mean, you're not paying taxes for a while. That's still probably the best. <laughs> yeah. Right? Bank account. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it goes both ways too. It's like, you know, when, when franchisees have been in a, a business that maybe is pretty intense from an operation standpoint, when they get into one that like, I think, you know, Wolf, you had that, the guy that was doing the, um, did all the pizza businesses that got in, it's, he's consolidating the hand oh, in stone, right? Yeah. Like, you could hear it in his voice, how much he likes the hand in stone model because of the recurring yes. revenue element yeah. and those juicy gift card sales that don't get used and, you know, fall to the bottom line and just, you know, it operates in an easier way than what he had been used to with having to watch every penny in the food business to make it work. It's, it's interesting, man. Yeah, like these Orange Theory franchise. Imagine you're an Orange Theory franchisee. Even if you had one store, like pre-COVID, like some of these stores are cash flowing 65, 70 grand a month, like cash flowing. Like that's- Yeah. And now you go into what other franchise are you going to be excited about after that? Like anything you go into <laughs> after that, you're going to be like, this sucks. Like yeah. I, I thought I liked franchising. I don't know if I like it anymore. Like I want to go back to my Orange Theories. <laughs> yeah, they're spoiled. <laughs> Like, it's just like, I don't know what else. I've had a couple of reach out to me. I'm like, dude, I don't have anything. Yeah, I got nothing. Clo I don't know of anything close to what you're used to that would be worth your time doing a deep dive. They're on, still but. a good business. I mean, they've obviously, every fitness brand has declined post-COVID. I'd say probably 75% of them are nowhere close to recovering. And, you know, the business model is more or less toast. Orange Theory is still a great business, right? If you were making, you know, six, 700 grand and now you're making half that, that's still a good business. That's a great business to be in, right? And I kind of think about Crumble the same way. I don't know if there's a lot of back and forth on Twitter, but I'm like, look, the average Crumble franchise is making, what, 300? 
shit, if you go down to making 150 and a 450 build out, like that's still a good business. It works. Yeah. yeah. That's the funny part is everyone's calling for the demise of Crumble. And it's like, if you think they're like what their new economics are probably going to be at, which is, uh, could be even around what you said, JT, who knows? But like, you guys got to learn about all the other franchises. Crumble was welcome yeah. to reality, big boys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, oh God, man. So I've got Crumble. I've got a little list of FTDs that I'm, I'm excited to see. I got like seven that I'm just tracking. Jeez, I, I got like 25. I'm excited what are the seven? I mean, I got like tears to my list here, but Crumble <laughs> uh, and Crumble Chick-fil-A game day are three of them. I'm going to preserve the full list. Maybe, maybe maybe we'll do that next episode. That'll be a good segment. Game day is not going to really still have much to report, right? It's still going to be, yeah, it's still going to, it's too well, early, I think. I want to, oh, I'm really curious about but it doesn't matter because the country yeah. sold out. I want to see how no. many how many <laughs> got like, open though. <laughs> how many units did that get open? I just think it's going to be interesting. Of like whatever the headline was, eight hundred. But their run started in July of last year because I I put it on an email to my database and I went back and looked at it. My question, the, the headline was, "Will this be the fastest growing franchise in the back half of this year?" I had a feeling it was. Wait, how many did they sell know, in the back? The elements, I think, year to like over the previous eight months from then. I, I think it's like. Seven, eight hundred licenses. Start in July, something like that. Yeah, yeah, June or July, something Holy like that. Yeah, that is crazy. You know what the best part of this? Damn, you right. know what the best part of this, and why a lot of people, you know, maybe the game day guys aren't actually doing this, but imagine if you you're them or the three of us own whatever there is three locations, and you can show, I think it was like nine hundred grand of EBITDA on one of them or something like that, and you can go sell eight hundred locations, get fifteen or twenty of those things open. Make sure you focus on the performance of those things. And like Drew, Wolf, we're going to, the three of us are going to personally go there and work in those stores and make sure those 15 locations kill it. And then that's going to be the next FDD. Then we're going to call up every major private equity firm in town and say, hey, we'll sell you this for 150 million bucks. That's a pretty <laughs> good approach to making a lot of money, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think. There's questionable tactics around that. It gets sell 800 units. And let's be honest, most people can't do that. Thank God. Well, I, you know, that's an accomplishment in and of itself. Like, that's insane. I just... Yeah. To be able to process that many transactions. Oh, it's so, incredible. I mean, it's not 800 transactions because there's a lot of multi-unit deals in there, but still a lot of deals to process. They got to be doing wild. like a discovery day, like three discovery days a week. I don't know what they're doing, but like, that's got to be intense. Packed. Because if you think Stadium about it, seating. let's say 25% of the people that attend Discovery Day actually close. Like, that's a lot of Discovery Days that they're doing nonstop, back to back for six straight months to sell that many units. Unless they're selling like 20 or 30 packs, which I don't think they are. Yeah, they get, they've they got heard. some big... I, yeah, I've, heard of, I've heard of a 34 pack that I think it fell apart, but... I helped a guy, good dude, owns a CrossFit gym with a partner, works for a very large successful corporation, you know, has been in the entrepreneurship game for a little bit, has flexibility. He, and he brought in a partner that has a medical background, which I think was a really smart move, that business. He bought one unit. I think I'm the only broker in America that did a single unit transaction with game day. <laughs> and it was the right thing for him because some guy he told me came in and bought the other 15 units in that metropolitan area. And you know, this was basically like the only one that was left. It just happened to be kind of in his backyard because obviously he can cross sell a lot to his CrossFit members and stuff like that. But I was like, well, you know, you can look at it a couple different ways. Number one, it could be cheap 
growth for you through picking up some licenses if you know that franchisee can't get all those open or it could be great brand awareness if everything goes as planned but i i can't imagine what that development schedule on a 15 unit deal here's, here's like. the one two things i want to comment on one people need to understand that 800 units or even 200 units or 100 units sold doesn't really mean anything right everybody thinks oh my god they sold 100 units in the last six months you know this brand's going to sell out. There's going to be a hundred locations throughout the country. That's not true. And bragging about that is like equally stupid because let's just say you have a hundred units and everybody's uh, only bought 10 packs. There's 10 franchisees in that system. Those 10 franchisees start with I opening one location. If that one location doesn't perform, they're not opening locations two through 10. So regardless of how many units you sell, the number of franchisees, you know, you got to compare that to see, you know, are we actually talking, you know, how many locations are we actually going to be opening here? Because if you sold 100 and they're all three packs, now you got, you know, 30 plus franchisees and those are going to be 30 plus people opening the first unit. So their opening timeline is going to be a lot more expedited compared to those big multi-unit franchisees. The other piece I want to say is, what do you guys think? This is more of a question. What do you guys think from a service business standpoint, how this plays out? Because like me with Superior, I'd say it's, so Metro Detroit's technically eight territories. Am I opening all eight territories the day I open day one, or am I opening one territory? To me, I'm opening all eight because my marketing spend is went out, out to all eight territories. I'm going to service that entire market day one. Is that the same as eight game days? I don't think it is. You better perform though, JT. <laughs> better perform, that's right. <laughs> but you know what I mean? From like a service business standpoint, it's almost like the more territories you own, it's just more area to hunt, Right. Like you, there's more area to go service. But sometimes, whereas, but but there's logistics, right? Like windshield time can kill you. Like if you have, you know, you, you got to optimize yeah, your schedule sure. and all that like, kind of stuff. I, like I, the I, estimates, I, I did, the cluster. I'm literally signing a warehouse lease this Monday, and the location we picked, we try to pick a central location where I can go an hour, basically in any direction, you know, to be able to service it. I might need to add another warehouse or two, but hypothetically, like that's not eight locations opening day one. You know what I mean? And it's never going to be eight. Do you have minimums attached to each territory? From like an opening standpoint? Minimum royalties? Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah, no, I do. Minimum royalties. Yeah. Are they counting it though as if you are opening, like you're an eight territory operator as from day one? Or are you just saying, I'm going to be spending the marketing dollars in all these neighborhoods? No, I think there's a timeline associated with it, right? The royalties ramp up over time. But for me, from like an operational standpoint, I'm opening all of it from day one, right? Like why would yeah. I not, right? So if I have... That's to say I was technically opening the, the northeast part of my territory and I get a call from the southeast. Of course, I'm going to go service that territory, right? Go get it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. I mean, it's just, it's different. It's a, I think brick and mortar and just service, non-brick and mortar, let's call it. They just have to be viewed entirely different from, yeah. from the lens of units. Well, yeah, it's, it's almost, but it's like, are you a multi-unit operator? Are you considered a multi-unit operator? I don't know. Not, not right? necessarily in the same yeah. sense of, people that are running multiple brick and mortar locations. It's a little, it's definitely different, but you're going to have a big team of people. So, you know, yeah, I mean, like the labor has to scale, but you're not having to do construction for every territory or, you know, it's really just labor, right? Let's take it a step deeper. Eight territories, you know, that could be considered one territory, right? It just depends on what population size or however the, the franchise or cuts it. But from like a franchise development, marketing, all that, they can say, oh, we sold 300 territories. Did they sell 300 or did they sell 30? Right? Like, it just depends on how they yeah. splice it up. And you can really game the system whatever you want. Oh, for sure. Yeah, the savvy ones are, I mean, you're incentivized to 
make your territory small so you can sell more franchises, right? Right. So JT, put your franchisor hat on. Do you think it's wise in a service business or I guess any any kind of business, do you think it's wise to sell out entire metropolitan markets to one franchise owner? Probably not. Well, it depends. I think it depends on the franchise owner, right? Somebody like me? Sure. I'm just kidding. But <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think it's probably, you know, no, it's probably not. You probably want to splice it up, right? It lowers your risk. Yeah, but make sure the territories make sense, right? Like there's typically pockets, right? And clusters of kind of, you know, how metropolitan markets are organized from a community standpoint. But uh, yeah, because we're, you know, we're talking to a bunch of brands right now with Excel franchise development. We're like, do not sell out Dallas, Fort Worth to one franchise owner. No way. Because if it doesn't go well, there's no options. Like, well, I mean, there are options, but, you know, there's more options if you can intelligently break up the market into different areas or submarkets that you have multiple franchisees in case one something happens with one personal stuff or they just don't perform like you think they're going to perform because you don't know too like how a franchisee is going to perform until it's game time you know, then they have other franchisees in the market that hopefully one of them is a performer they can buy out the other one and develop the market the, the way that it well, should like be milkshake factory on the franchise or side you know when that went to market and started selling units one of the first people that reached out was a private equity firm i think they wanted 40 units and, you know, from the franchisor side, it's like, I don't think we had even sold five units at the time. And you have, you know, big private equity firms like, hey, we're going to take 40 units now. And that's a pretty big check being written and pretty exciting to say you just sold 40 units and you got all this cash in the bank. And ultimately, the decision was like, no, we're not doing that. And the private equity firm walked because they said that we had said the most they could buy was like, I don't know, five or 10. And they were like, that's not a big enough opportunity for us. But from the franchisor side, it's like, that's like, in the end, it was in an A plus tier one market. Like, how, there's so much risk there that you can't give it away to a private equity firm that may or may not perform. And, you know, they're going to put operators in that don't really have that much skin in the game. You know what I mean? Compared to a mom and pop that's putting their life savings and opening three territories, we're going to be there every day. A private equity firm is going to be like, all right, we're going to open 10 this year. We're going to hire managers off indeed. And we're going to see if this works. It's, yeah. And also, like, the leverage that creates right off the bat, you have a PE system with 40 units. Like, if it does go well, all of a sudden, it can sway the system for a, a long period of time, potentially. Right. Yeah, it's just, there's, that's like, I don't think there is one. I mean, but if, yeah, unless there's like a PE firm that just had a history of exceptional operations of big multi-unit deals, then I think it actually does introduce more risk. But as you said earlier in the pod, JT, most brands would take a franchise fee from a dog if they could. <laughs> so that stuff's turned down. All right, let's just end it. We got to wrap this up. So what are, I mean, let's see, next next time we'll have an episode airing, it'll be end of March. So there'll be some FTDs that are out by that point. What are, let's just do top two FTDs you're looking for, that you're looking forward to, to seeing. Crumble's number one for me. It has to be. I think Crumble's number one for everybody. Number two, that's a good question. Yeah. No, no, you can't You can't say Crumble. We are, let's just take Crumble off the board. Let me pull it up. Let me pull it up. <laughs> I got a list of them. I said Chick-fil-A as one. I'm also interested in Seven Brew because they also like game day. So they're like 3,000 locations or something crazy like that. So I'm so curious to see how many of these are getting open on a yearly basis so far. So it's not even necessarily the item 19. I just want to know like, okay, you sold a lot, but are you getting them open? That's what matters most. They uh, are. I think so they those have are my 100 tip. open right now. Yeah. I don't know. I, they sold to food operators. Didn't they sell to like proven existing multi-unit operators in the food space for the most part? Like you, you couldn't buy a onesie twosie. You had to take down a big region, I think, with Seven Brew. Yeah, I don't know. But 
I don't want to say my brands because I'm looking at my, my list and a lot of them are brands that I know are struggling and I want to see how they reposition their FDD. You know what I mean? It's like, oh. and how it always yeah. goes is they're super transparent and the transparency goes down every year because they don't want, they want to show less and less. So those are the brands that I'm always like, oh, I wonder how this is going to play out. We'll check, find out in the next FDD. So you're so negative. <laughs> God, JT. <laughs> no, we got to be, we got to have a positive podcast next time. No, I want I want to see Club Pilates. Uh, that's I love that little brand, big brand. You just like tracking them, or yeah, yeah. I think it's kind of one of these under the radar brands that everything I've heard has performed yeah. very well. And AUVs again, rumor mill AUVs keep going up, which is impressive. That they've had all. I would also put them as one of the brands that are an exception to the rule. Like they've just been so good, and I think they may have been like the first boutique fitness brand. Like they were, they started before Orange Theory. So yeah, that's a phenomenal brand. That one painter I'd like to see too. I mean, at the end of the day, what you want to see is like, you want to see the franchisees outperforming the corporate locations, yeah. right? Like that's when, that's like one of these little indicators you can look at to say, okay, hey, like they've got this thing, this ship moving in the right direction. Because, and, and there's a couple out there that are off the radar that nobody talks about that, that do show that right now. That uh, have a bunch of corporate locations open, have a bunch of franchise locations open, franchise locations are doing well, and uh, and now they're moving to 100% franchise to focus. No more corporate locations. That's sweet. It's a great brand. Yeah, I, I've had a few uh, owners. That, uh, David Schock owns like 40 of them. Or at least at the time, he probably owns a bunch more now. But that was like a year and a half ago. So, All right, cool. We're over time here, folks. But So we'll be tracking 7 Brew, Club Pilates for Drew. JT, secret brands that he's not going to share. Shame on you, JT. <laughs> but all right, that's it. Thanks for coming on, guys. Thanks for listening to Franchise Empires. We're coming to you soon with actionable insights to take the next step on your franchise journey. So make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen. Listen.